From the Relationship Center, I'm psychotherapist and dating coach Jessica Engel, and this is I Love You Too, a show about how to create and sustain meaningful relationships. I'm professional certified coach Josh Van Vliet, and on today's episode, we're going to talk about why you're not crazy. Dating is hard, especially for us anxious folks. We're so happy you're here, and please remember that this show is not a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. So we want you to know that you're normal if you struggle with dating, and we're going to tell you why you're normal today. In particular, we're going to share three reasons why dating is so hard and give you a three-step process for increasing confidence and ease in your love life. That's right. We, When we were thinking about all of the things we could talk about today in terms of why dating is so hard, a lot of things came to mind. And some of them will probably seem very obvious to the audience. Those are not the ones we're going to dive into. For example, online dating, kind of cray. Uh, we are not going to be talking about online dating today. Um, but we're honing in on three things that you actually have some control over, right? We can't change the fact that online dating is the way a lot of people meet these days. And we really wanted to give you something that helps you feel empowered. Um, so we're going to talk about three reasons that dating is hard that are uh, go back to fear, um, so a lot of singles, when they come to work with me, with my team, the heart of what they're struggling with is fear in a lot of different iterations. So shall we dive in? Let's dive in. Yeah. So tell us about what's the first reason uh, that dating is so hard. Yeah. So the first one uh, is insecure attachment. So a lot of people have probably heard about attachment styles these days. And um, just in brief, uh, there there are a lot of really wonderful attachment uh, resources out there. A classic is the book Attached. So I'm not going to go into all of the details, but just uh, a little overview. Attachment refers to how we need relationships, uh, how we bond with people. Our attachment styles refer to the style with which we relate to others. And what we know from other research that's been done over the years is that there are insecure attachment styles and secure attachment styles. Uh, so, Josh, what do you remember about secure versus insecure styles? Well, uh, secure uh, generally means you're, you're pretty comfortable uh, being with your attachment figure. And when we talk, mm-hmm. about, talk about attachment figures, we're really talking about parents as our first attachment figure. Is That's that right? right. Yeah. Well, caregivers, that could be parents, could be grandparents. It's really whoever's doing the you know, primary caregiving mm-hmm. uh, when you're a child. And then later in life, um, oftentimes your primary attachment um, can be to a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, But it can also be to friends, a therapist, uh, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know you've shared about uh, with me about studies that they do with with very young kids, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, what happens when there are departures and arrivals. Yes, that's right. So there's a very famous study called the Strange Situation, where they put uh, a young one with their mom in a room with a stranger. They had the mom leave and then come back, and then they sort of observed the child. And based on that study, they found that there were um, four different styles. So a secure, securely attached child essentially trusts that they're going to be taken care of emotionally. So what happens when mom leaves and comes back is they're a little upset that mom left and they kind of run to her, mm-hmm. but very quickly they go back to playing. 
Um, the other three styles, uh, one is anxious, ambivalent. That's the kiddo that when mom comes back, they run to mom and they cling to mom mm-hmm. and they're very upset and they're hard to soothe mm-hmm. uh, because they've had kind of inconsistent uh, emotional attunement and safety. They don't fully trust that mom is actually fully there for them. Mm-hmm. The avoidantly attached kiddo, mom leaves and comes back and, and that kid um, almost looks like they don't notice mom has come back. Mm-hmm. Um, However, when we look at a, a, what do you call them, biomarkers, uh, those kiddos are actually just as panicked as the anxious ambivalent kiddos. Mm. They're just not showing it. Um, so they've learned over time, they've had enough um, abandonment on an emotional level to n- just sort of dissociate, which is just a fancy word for separate from their feelings of attachment mm-hmm. as a way to protect themselves. Okay. The last style is disorganized or... Uh, fearful, avoidant. And that often is the product of um, a lot of trauma. Uh, In that case, the the kiddo when mom comes back will do kind of strange things on the way to reconnecting with mom Mm -hmm. because they have had an experience of lack of safety with mom. So that might look like the kid sort of walks sideways to mom Hmm. in kind of a, a strange way. Um, it's kind of unpredictable because their caregiver was unpredictable. So they're mirroring that. They have both the, the biological pull towards mom and a sort of wired in uh, terror of mom. So that's often sort of the result of things like abuse. Got it. Yeah. And so how does all this relate to dating? Right, yeah. So when it comes to dating... Because our partner is our primary attachment figure in adulthood, the, the attachment style that we've developed either in childhood or, and or through our adult experiences is going to show up in dating. Mm-hmm. So if you, for example, grew up with a parent who was inconsistently available and you have a more anxious style, for example, if you're out dating and you uh, meet someone who is not great at texting and you don't hear from them consistently, Mm -hmm. your nervous system might get really activated in that circumstance. Um, And so you might feel quite anxious. This can create a whole bunch of different dynamics. For some people, it means, uh, particularly those who are more of the anxious style, they may sort of reach out to that person repeatedly um, because they have, you know, learned from their early experiences to sort of over-attach or to kind of cling. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that they do consciously. It's just what their body is telling them to do. Um, and that can, if they're in relationship with somebody who maybe has more of the avoidant style, mm-hmm. um, lead to an anxious avoidant dance where their partner uh, is not wanting the closeness because they learned early on to dissociate, distance themselves. And so you have one person pursuing and the other person distancing and around and around and around you go. Yeah, and that's very painful for folks. Very, very painful, very painful, yeah. Yeah, and on the avoidance side of things, they are wanting relationship, 
but they also have these blocks they get to in a relationship where it feels overwhelming. It feels like the other person's trying to own them, mm. uh, to consume them. And um, this may be semi-conscious, this may be fully conscious, but for them, it's also confusing because mm-hmm. they do want to be close on some level, but they, they get kind of mixed signals from within themselves. Yeah, so it sounds like it can be very confusing for, for both parties. Mm-hmm. One person is looking for closeness and pursuing that out of uh, a more anxious style, perhaps a, an approach that was maybe adaptive in childhood. Absolutely. Like reaching out in this way was how they got closeness, how they got connection and intimacy with their attachment figure. Right. But in uh, this kind of dating context, uh, it's often counterproductive, especially when they're perhaps paired up with someone with an avoidant attachment style for whom when they have that kind of uh, a lot of input, a lot of reaching out from the other person, they will tend to withdraw. That's right. Uh, That's right. Which is then the opposite of what the person wants, uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. really on both sides, because the person with the avoidant attachment style also wants connection. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, they're just in this kind of painful dance where neither person is really getting what they want and need. That's right. That's right. You got it. When we work with our clients through dating therapy, part of what we're looking at is how can we, uh, what's called earn secure attachment or develop secure attachment through a secure relationship with a therapist. This is also something you can do with secure friends um, so that you are essentially learning how to feel more relaxed in dating situations. I want to just highlight what you just said because I think this is really important that you can develop secure attachment. Yes. This isn't something that is fixed. You're just stuck with whatever you got from childhood and oh well. That's right. Uh, but rather what you're saying is through uh, support, through new connections, whether they be friends, uh, romantic connections, uh, support from professionals like therapists, mm-hmm. that you can uh, develop a new way of relating. Mm-hmm. To people, uh, particularly attachment figures, and I think this is such good news for us, yes. for all of us, because we all have some amount of insecure attachment. That's right. That's right. And, yeah. And it's you know, like you're saying, it it shows up differently for each of us. For some of us, we tend more towards an anxious attachment style. Some of us tend more towards a uh, avoidant or disorganized. Mm-hmm. But even those of us with uh, what we'd call a secure attachment style still have elements of both. That's right. I really appreciate you pointing that out because I think that's something that um, some people don't fully understand about attachment styles. You know, Walt Whitman said, we all, we contain multitudes, Mm -hmm. right? We are very complex. And so everybody does have a a little bit of everything. I tend to send my clients a a assessment, an attachment assessment. We can put that in the show notes. Um, A really great one by a woman named Diane Poole-Heller. and what I love about this particular assessment is it, div- it gives you your results uh, in a pie chart. It tells you what percentage of, of which style you are. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, n- no one I've ever sent this to has come back fully one style. Mm-hmm. In fact, everyone has come back with a little bit of everything. Yeah. And so I think that's really helpful to recognize because in one situation, you could be showing up as um, anxious depending on who's across from you. Mm. And in another situation, you could be showing up as avoidant. And that could be kind of confusing for some people. 
Got it. So you're saying it actually can vary depending on who we're with. Right, because attachment is inherently dyadic, right? Mm-hmm. That meaning it's inherently there's two people involved. Mm-hmm. And so the other 50% of the, the picture is going to have an impact on how your 50% is being experienced. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And back to your point about, um, you know, we can heal uh, our attachment styles. That is so hopeful. And I think at one point we did we did think that what you got in childhood was what you got, and you had to work with it. And we we know that's not true now. We mm. are very we're you know neuroplastic, and we can rewire our attachment styles. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's attachment mm-hmm. uh, in in very brief overview. Yes. What's the second uh, reason that dating is so hard these days? Yeah, so the second reason is unresolved trauma. Um, And so when I'm talking about trauma, I'm referring to anything that is too overwhelming to fully process when it's happening. Mm. Wait, so just say that again. Trauma is anything that's too overwhelming to fully process when it's happening. Yes. So the reason I'm, I'm giving you this definition is I think a lot of people get confused about what trauma is. When they hear the word trauma, they think uh, war or abuse, physical abuse, um, natural disasters. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that our nervous systems have a certain capacity to really process what's happening. And if we exceed that capacity, if what, you know, what's happening is more intense than we can um, hold, it's traumatizing. Uh, And that experience can get lodged uh, in our nervous system, in our uh, right brain in such a way that it keeps living in our lives in some way. So let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. Uh, If... If a little one were walking down the street and they saw a dog and the dog was barking at them and this little one was a very sensitive uh, little one and didn't have an adult with them and that dog was much bigger than them, um, if they got close enough to the dog, their nervous system might go into fight or flight and it might be quite overwhelming mm-hmm. such that... Um, Every time they saw a dog thereafter, they became kind of flooded with a sense of fear. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, you know, you and I walking down the street and a dog barking at us isn't going to traumatize us as adults, right? But for that little one, that might have been quite traumatizing mm-hmm. and I've left an imprint. So let's come back to dating, right? Let's say that you grow up in a family where there is a lot of like kind of subtle digs, little criticisms here and there. No matter what you do, there's always kind of a little bit of a, a knock from mm-hmm. one of your, your caregivers. And then you're out dating and you are trying to build a relationship and your partner tends to be um, very playful and likes to joke around and maybe tease a lot. Mm -hmm. And perhaps when they're teasing, you become um, upset Mm -hmm. and you don't fully understand why because one part of you recognizes that they're not meaning any harm by it. Mm -hmm. 
that kind of dynamic could lead to conflict, right? That can kind of create distance between you and your partner mm -hmm. if you don't fully understand what's happening or have tools to really handle the, the sort of residue in your nervous system from growing up in an environment where it wasn't emotionally safe. Right. So the what's happening in that moment, while not dangerous in that moment, is bringing up this past experience of something that was painful and dangerous. That's right. And uh, leading to maybe a, an emotional reaction that doesn't seem to match what's happening in the moment, mm -hmm. though it makes a lot of sense if you know the whole story. That's right. Yeah, and this one, just like with the insecure attachment dynamics, these can be things that are happening automatically for people mm -hmm. without them understanding why. And that can be very, very frustrating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's one of the things about the, the what we're sharing today that is so helpful to, to shine a light on this because these are processes that so often operate in the background without us noticing that they're operating. And if we don't know it's happening, it can be so frustrating, yeah. so confusing. Yes. Like, why do I keep having this same experience over and over again? Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Like, am I doing something to attract this? Am I, you know, all the kinds of thoughts that we have very naturally about these experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think it's so useful to kind of shine a light here, just the way that, that you're doing. One of the things I think is also really helpful to emphasize in what you're saying here is that trauma doesn't need to be a big T trauma. That's right. Yes. And that all kinds of experiences can be traumatizing in the way that you're sharing about it, that it overloads our nervous system beyond the point where we can process it in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think especially for those of us uh, sensitive folks who've been through something, but it, it doesn't kind of reach the level of kind of quote unquote big T trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, it's easy to dis to discount your own experience. Yes. Think, oh, that wasn't a big deal. Right. I shouldn't have been upset by that. That shouldn't have whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet uh, until you get some support to process that, to heal, mm -hmm. to reintegrate that experience, uh, it can keep causing uh, difficult experiences over and over again. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I would say there, uh, you know, one hallmark of trauma is that we don't have the support we need before, during, and after to process the experience. Mm -hmm. And so for some people, they are going through difficult things. And also on top of that, the people around them are saying, you shouldn't be upset about this. Right, And so they may have that experience later in life when they're dating and all this stuff is coming up. There might be an internal voice that, that says, you shouldn't be upset about this, mm -hmm. um, which is why it's so, so important to get in the presence of people who can really help us identify what those wounds are and affirm that they had an impact and that they deserve uh, healing. Yeah, I think that this comes back to that, uh, our, our title today, you're not crazy. Right, exactly. <laughs> you're not crazy. Yeah. Uh, these things are real. And uh, if you're experiencing anything like this, you're not crazy. Yes, absolutely. And there are tools. And again, a little later uh, in the episode, we'll go over a foundational three-step process that can help with all three of the uh, common dating difficulties that we're talking about today. We're touching briefly on trauma today. Obviously, we could talk a lot more about trauma and how that shows up in dating. And, yes. Uh, but just to kind of introduce the topic today, anything else you want to say about trauma before we share the third? Well, I want to give just one more example. Um, and that is, let's say that 
you are a, a woman who grew up with a sort of distant and maybe um, at times unkind uh, father. And uh, later in life, a couple things happen for you when you uh, think about dating. One is you avoid it entirely because your nervous system isn't sure whether, and this is assuming you are a woman dating men, you know, your nervous system isn't sure that men are safe. The other thing that can happen that I've seen a lot is that woman may be attracted to men who are emotionally unavailable Mm -hmm. and may be distant and at times maybe a little cutting. Uh, And that's sort of what we call repetition compulsion where the nervous system just tries to seek out what's familiar to try and heal whatever that is, Mm -hmm. uh, to try and conquer it. Um, So... Yeah, I just wanted to give that additional uh, examples to help people kind of understand how these early experiences can play out. Great. All right. Well, should we go on to uh, the third reason why dating is so hard? Let's do it. So the third reason is dating anxiety. So dating anxiety is actually a subset of social anxiety. Let's start there. Social anxiety is the fear of being humiliated or rejected. Some people may call it shyness. Dating anxiety, of course, is the fear of being rejected or humiliated in a dating setting, okay? So an example of this might be, I see somebody I'm really attracted to across the room, I wanna walk over and talk to them, and all of a sudden, I'm sweating, I am frozen, my mind is blanking, and I just can't, okay? Dating anxiety can be the result of trauma, Mm -hmm. okay? Maybe you were rejected or bullied a lot growing up. So it's really scary to put yourself out there. Um, But it also can just be genetic. Sometimes social anxiety is just something that their parents experienced it. um, And so it's kind of in the genes. Yeah, there's other examples of of dating anxiety. So if you have a tendency to ruminate before and after a date, that's a great example of dating anxiety. What am I going to do? What am I going to say? You know, some anxiety is, is normal, right? When we're dating, we're, that's a vulnerable act. Mm-hmm. But when it gets to a level where either we're avoiding dating or we are um, just really having a hard time being ourselves on a date or when we're meeting somebody we're attracted to, that starts to get into more of the like official dating anxiety realm. Yeah, and that's a really important point. Anxiety, some anxiety is normal for all of us. Yes. Uh, dating is inherently a thing that brings up some worries, some anxiety, some doubts. Usually when we're going out on a date, it's because it's something that's important to us. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, that's very normal to have some worries come up. And what you're highlighting here is there's a spectrum of kind yeah. of level of intensity. Yeah. And that for some folks, that level of intensity is so high that it really interferes with even being able to be present, mm-hmm. uh, to be who they are. Mm-hmm. on the date. And I've heard that it can show up uh, in different ways for different people. Like for some people, it's the thought of approaching somebody at a party mm-hmm. might be very, uh, bring up a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. For other people, it might be the messaging, you know, before and after, or it might be other specific situations might bring up dating anxiety. Is that true? Yeah, I appreciate you pointing that out. It's just like with social anxiety. Um, so with social anxiety, for some people, they're terrified of public speaking Um, but great at a party. For other people, it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. For other people, it's a one-on-one conversation. So you're right, with dating, it can kind of show up in lots of different ways. I I would say another way that dating anxiety shows up, um, particularly for men, is either um, what am I going to say 
or um, difficulty with touch and flirtation. Mm-hmm. And that comes up for women too, but I find um, it talked about a little bit more with the men that we're working with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then another one would be uh, letting our walls come down. I hear that one a lot. There, mm-hmm. For some people, it's, you know, they can, they can kind of flirt and uh, create a connection with someone, message, get on a date. But then when they get to the place where it's about building intimacy and going deep, they freeze. Mm-hmm. That's very scary. Yeah. I would say that a great way to tell whether dating anxiety is at play for you is to notice your inner critic around dating, meaning a voice inside you that maybe is um, criticizing you, putting you down. You shouldn't have said this. You shouldn't have done that. You, you know, you should lose 10 pounds. Nobody's ever going to want you, that sort of stuff. Um, that is uh, very, very classic for dating anxiety. Uh, and thankfully, also something that can be uh, rewired. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go ahead and go over our three-step process for making dating easier. The... Issues we've talked about today, insecure attachment, unresolved trauma, and dating anxiety, all of them are about fear. So the good news is that all three of these can be addressed and overcome using a similar process. So building healthy relationships does require mindfulness, calm, clear vision. And when we're in fight, flight, freeze, or shutdown, that's not going to be as possible. Right, So the first step to choosing relationships from a place of wisdom is really being able to track where we are in terms of fear. Yeah, and that's, uh, I love that you're highlighting this because I, I know there are a lot of different tools out there for, for things like this. Mm-hmm. And there, there are a lot of good tools. And this is one good approach that we're going to share with you today. It's about starting with tracking when you're experiencing fear, when your nervous system is activated and that fight or flight, freeze type response mm-hmm. so that you can kind of bring it down a little bit and see more clearly what's really happening and mm-hmm. make clear decisions based on what's important to you. Yes. Uh, so good. So yeah, please. Yeah. So that first step is to observe, to really identify where your nervous system is. And I want to just back up and, and explain a little bit of why I'm talking about nervous systems. So we as human beings, we have this incredible capacity for higher thinking. We can plan, we can think into the future, uh, we can envision what's to come, um, we can think about our feelings which is all wonderful. Um, and it doesn't mean that we're not also animals with animal instincts uh, and with nervous systems that respond to threat the same way that other animals do in a very predictable way. In fact, the more threat we have, we can actually kind of predict where our nervous system will go in terms of fight, flight, freeze, or shutdown. So um, we're going to talk with you today a a little bit about working with your nervous system, which is going to be the way uh, or the the system that sends signals when you are in fear or not, okay? Because that's the vital information we need. Your nervous system is basically trying to say uh, or or let you know when there's danger present. You got it. 
And when it's functioning really effectively, it very effectively lets you know when danger is present. You get a, a, a spike of uh, like adrenaline and other mm-hmm. things like that. You can get away from danger or fight or whatever you need to do. Mm-hmm. And then your system cools back down and you go on about your day. Yes. But of course, with these things that you're talking about here, your nervous system is basically responding inappropriately. It's, it's kind of saying there's danger here whether or not there's danger. Mm-hmm. Do I have that right? That's right, yeah. So remember, if we go back to trauma, for example, unresolved trauma, there may be no danger present when you're sitting across from that cutie you're on a date with uh, and they make a face that maybe sets your nervous system off. There's no actual danger, but your nervous system may not be able to tell that mm-hmm. because of its past experiences. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're wanting to, number one, observe. So really identifying whether your nervous system is in a state of fear. And, you know, there's a lot of different tools for this. We can link to one of my favorite uh, tools, which is really uh, looking at polyvagal theory. There's a wonderful map where we can actually kind of identify where we are in terms of our state. I love that resource. As you know, I'm a big fan of polyvagal theory. and I highly recommend folks check that out. Are there any uh, even signs that you might point to just like, are there things that we will notice in our bodies when we're experiencing fear that will just kind of even some some little cues? Totally, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, our preferred resting state is um, a social resting state. It's related to the ventral vagal system. The, the front part of the vagus nerve. There's a lot of technicalities in there that you probably don't need right now, but basically we like to rest in a space where we feel safe, secure, and connected to others. Mm-hmm. When we start to move out of that place, we go into sympathetic, our sympathetic nervous system. And that one is really about fight and flight. So some things that you might notice when you're in fight or flight is you might start to have an elevated heartbeat. You might um, you know, start to feel a lot of energy Uh, When we're in a lot of sympathetic overdrive, we sort of feel overwhelmed by our energy um, and overwhelmed by all the things that must be done. Mm -hmm. You might have the urge to to actually leave a situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And you also might do things like um, trying to appease others. That's a kind of tricky form of sympathetic where we're, we're just trying to say the things other people want us to say because we want to avoid any sort of conflict. Mm-hmm. Okay. You might also get kind of angry or irritable. Mm-hmm. That's a form of fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if we get even more stressed, we start to go into a dorsal state or a, a shutdown state. And in that place, we actually stop feeling much. We can kind of go into a state of numbness. Mm-hmm. We also may have a deep sense of shame or depression. Um, and we might kind of just feel frozen and helpless. Mm-hmm. Got it. And um, as we said, these are what Jessica's naming here are, are uh, different states from polyvagal theory. And we'll do another episode on that uh, mm-hmm. a deep dive there because it's so good. It's so useful. Uh, in everything we're talking about here. Yes. So that is the first step is really observing where you are. I think for a lot of people, they don't actually even necessarily know when they're in fight or flight or shutdown. A great example is if they're um, in that place I referenced at the beginning where they're texting a bunch. Um, That may be just kind of what they do automatically, but when they really check in, they realize, oh, I'm, I'm actually feeling quite scared. Mm-hmm. So number one, really identifying where you are. And it sounds like that, observing that gives you a, a little bit of space between the experience you're having 
whether it's anxiety or fear or uh, shutdown mm-hmm. and the action that you might take. Mm-hmm. Whereas before you might have just done the next thing, like texted that person without really being conscious of, oh, that's really about my anxiety. I'm trying to soothe my anxiety right now. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you have an opportunity to observe, then we have a chance to do something different, which that's is right. I think what you're going to point to next here. Yes, absolutely. So once we have identified, we've really observed where we are, whether we are, our nervous system is uh, in a state of fear or a state of security, we have a choice point. Okay. So if we have uh, found ourselves feeling pretty good, I would recommend challenging yourself. And if we are feeling, if we're in a state of fear, I'm going to recommend soothing. Okay, so the second step, there's a choice point depending on what you found when you observed your nervous system. Challenge and soothe are the two options because when it comes to new behaviors, new patterns, we have to challenge our comfort zone and expand it slowly but surely. And the way that we can challenge our our comfort zone is through tiny challenges, manageable challenges, combined with soothing. I want to just emphasize the tiny part of that because I think so often we think that in order to expand our comfort zone, we've got to take these giant leaps. Yes. And we've got to like do the thing that scares us the most. That's right. right? We hear that all the time and it, it's actually not true. It's yeah. not effective for when you're uh, healing, for example, dating anxiety. Mm-hmm. You're going to set up a cycle where you do the thing that scares you the most and it's going to be awful. It's going to be a miserable experience for you and it's going to reinforce the experience of like, I should never do that. You've got it. You've got it, yeah. Versus what you're pointing to, which is taking tiny steps Mm -hmm. that's just incrementally uh, expanding your comfort zone so that you gradually become more comfortable with a wider comfort zone. That's right. So some of this comes from cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure therapy, which is a very longstanding field that looks at taking challenges that are between like a 30 and a 50 on a scale of zero to 100 when it comes to fear, okay? So in order to say, get over a phobia of planes, we're gonna choose the exposure activity that only brings up about a, a, a 30 out of 100 of anxiety. So for some, that might be imagining being on a plane. And once that exposure experience is done, doing some soothing. And then the next time we come to the exposure, maybe we can handle a little bit more. Maybe we actually like look at a plane. So let's bring this back to dating, right? If I am terrified of setting up an online dating profile, the 30 to 50 task might be, so this challenge might be that I talk with my friend about it. Maybe just talking about it brings up that fear, Mm -hmm. but not too much. Because just as you said, if we bring up too much of that fear, our nervous system is just going to associate dating with terror, Mm -hmm. right? So coming back to our three-step process, that second step, if I'm feeling pretty good, I, I, I recommend taking on a challenge, something between a 30 and a 50. If I'm not, if I'm feeling scared, 
then the soothing piece is what's needed in that moment. Mm-hmm. And there are very uh, many, many ways to soothe the nervous system. You know, I think everyone these days is familiar with things like mindfulness, um, deep breathing is always a good one to go to. You know, I could go on and on. There's journaling, there's therapy. Yeah, I, I bet the folks listening, you probably even have one or two or more things that you already know that mm-hmm. uh, work for soothing, whether it's going for a walk or a run or listening to music or you mm-hmm. know, any number of things that you probably already have some resources here. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I want to emphasize here, we certainly don't want to... Um, I don't know what the word is, but we get that it's not just going to be a few deep breaths to get over (laughs) the fear that you might be experiencing. I'll just take a couple of deep breaths and then my trauma will go away. Right. Right. Thanks, Josh and Jessica. That was helpful. (laughs) No, 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 we get that. Um, And that's why this this step is part of a three-step process that needs to be repeated many times. Okay. And it it needs to be sandwiched between the observing and the third step. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's move on to that third step. The third step is reflecting. So you've just done this check-in process with yourself. You've challenged and or soothed. This third step is about really looking at what was happening for you in those first two steps. So in that first, um, step when you're checking in with yourself. Maybe you realize you're on a date and you're feeling overwhelmed and you don't really know why, okay? And maybe after the date, you take a moment to do this three-step process. You check in with the overwhelm and then you do some soothing. You get to a place where you're feeling more grounded and you can take a moment to really ask yourself, what was the overwhelm about there? Maybe you do this by yourself or in a, a journal entry or with a therapist And maybe what you get down to is, gosh, my mom wasn't great with boundaries growing up. And I think my nervous system felt this guy wanting to be close. And I got overwhelmed in the way that I used to get overwhelmed as a kid when my mom wasn't great with boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really want to emphasize here that it's going to, you're going to need to be in that more relaxed state to do that kind of thinking work, most likely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think that's so smart. Number one, uh, it's it's so hard for us to think clearly about things when we're in a state of fight, flight, freeze. Mm-hmm. When our nervous system is looking for danger, it's on high alert. Um, the way it's designed to keep us safe is to have us very narrowly looking for those things that are signals of danger and very hard to tell the difference between anything else. And so once we get to that place of bringing our amygdala down a little bit, that little part in our brain that is related to fight, flight, freeze. Uh, Once we get to that place, we can see a little bit more clearly. And I think it's super important to to emphasize here, it doesn't mean that danger isn't present. But what we're we're talking about here is a way to help you uh, assess clearly so that once you're uh, kind of in that space, you can reflect, you've had a moment to soothe and you're looking, see, you might see, oh, there are some things I'm picking up from this person I just want to date with, for example, that are actually maybe warning signs for me of this may not be the right match or there may be something that I've learned from my history doesn't work for me in dating. And that's really valuable information. It's really valuable um, or you might discover, like Jessica's saying, is, oh, that is related to this experience I had when I was a kid that actually has nothing to do with this person who just is very sweet and wants to connect with me. And so I can, I can 
be kind and compassionate to that, uh, that part of myself, that experience I had, while also being available to connect with this person who may be great to connect with. But it's about having that space to see clearly what's happening and make a decision out of that kind of inner knowing that you have, seeing clearly about what's happening here, rather than the, uh, the worry or the anxiety or the fear. Yes. I really appreciate you pointing out the kind of like different ways that reflection process could have gone post-date, right? That person could have sat down and said, well, I was really overwhelmed. Oh, because he wasn't listening to me because he was um, love bombing me maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is incredibly important to hear. Um, And we may just need some space and time um, and that soothing to get to a place where we can hear it. Mm Yeah. So those are the three steps, and the the beauty of these three steps, um, they they just get to be repeated. Okay. So you do that reflection process, you learn what you need to learn from that moment, and then you get to start over again. You get to just check in and see, gosh, where am I doing now, or how am I doing now, uh, and make a choice of challenging or soothing from there. And this starts to be a second nature process, and a process that I really think helps set us up to use dating as a a process for personal growth, for transformation, and for ultimately getting to where we want to be, which is earning secure attachment and building healthy relationships. Pretty good stuff. Yeah. Well, anything else before we wrap up today? I don't think so. We are hoping that this information helps you in your dating life, makes things a little bit easier, and maybe more than anything, just reassures you that if you're struggling with dating, if you're experiencing anxiety in dating, you are so, so normal, and there are some wonderful tools out there to support you. Yeah. So uh, thanks so much for joining us. This is fun. And if you found this episode useful, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a rating and review in the Apple Podcast app. That helps other people find the show. And uh, you can reach us at podcast at relationshipcenter.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, questions, reactions, uh, struggles, what you'd love to hear more of. Um, So yeah, please feel free to reach out. And until next time, we love you too. We love you too. I love you too. I love you too. I love you too. I love you, Josh. I love you, Jessica. I love you too. (laughs) 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 We can also do until next time.